Thank you, sir. Take over, lover of my soul. Wonderful um, coordination, though he didn't probably know it, with the purpose of the message this morning. Before I get into the message, uh, I need to say something about one of those photographs. Uh, by the way, when you're not a guest speaker, you face your introduction here with fear and trembling. <laughs> because uh, you don't know who knows what about you. <laughs> but uh, thank you for the introduction. And uh, But that scene with me using the Evangicube, I was in the city of Jaipur in India in January, so that's why we had coats on. Uh, it does get cold up there, but in the summer, it's intensely hot. And on a later trip to Jaipur... Uh, I was uh, sharing Christ with two uh, jewelers, uh, brothers that owned a jewelry store, and using the Evangel Cube, and they took me upstairs. Uh, I think Dr. Williams, Lee Williams, was with me at that point, and their office area was air-conditioned, so we were very glad, because it was a hun literally 120 degrees Fahrenheit outside in May in India. So it gets antithetically hot um, in that part of India. So I was um, sharing with them, and as soon as I opened the Evangicube to the panel that shows Jesus on the cross, these two guys bowed down like this. And I said, what are you guys doing? And they said, oh, sir, you have shown us... Well, actually, they said, oh, sir, you have shown us something very sacred. And I said, well, the scene depicted here is sacred. The event is sacred. And then I <laughs> clapped it together. And I said, but this is just a piece of plastic. Well, when I was done, they couldn't take their eyes off of the hole every time you open a panel. And they said... Sir, how much will you sell this to us for? And I said, well, what do you want to do with it? And they had a shelf behind them with a curtain across, and they pulled the curtain back, and they had Vishnu and Shiva and Ganesha and a variety, a selection of Hinduism's 330 million gods. And they said, we want it for our god shelf, sir. And I said, well, I was going to give, it was the end of the trip. I said, I was going to give this to you guys. But now you can't buy it for all the gems that are in this store. So you have to be careful when you're communicating in some context, but the Evangel Cube is extremely useful. It's like having your own little non-electric PowerPoint with you uh when you're explaining the gospel turn with me if you would to philippians chapter 1 and we'll be looking today at verses 19 through 21 familiar passage but hopefully one that we never quite probe fully the depth of and can gain a little more at least insight into that today ever since i was a kid I used to love science fiction past, the writings of H.G. Wells, particularly his film, The Time Machine. 
And uh, I guess most historians probably have a, a keen interest in the theme of time travel. So today, I'd like you to buckle in with me and get in our mental time machine and travel with me, not to history past, but to history future. Assuming that the Lord does not come yet, let's assume that it's December 31st, 2099, the end of this century. And let's imagine that the 37th state legislature is ending its session that day. And they gavel down, and officially the next day, their state constitution is replaced with Sharia law. We can hardly imagine such a moment. But there are things that our state governments have now enacted and passed just in our lifetime that 25, 30 years ago we could never have imagined would have happened. So that being the case, this could happen. The city of Irving still keeps having some Muslims appear before them in their city council meeting with a proposal that Sharia be accepted in the city of Irving for um, inheritance rights and marital rights. Just the beginning, the start. So they've tabled the motion successfully several times now, but they are persistent. My question is this morning that's driving the impulse to use this passage, my question is, will our evangelical church life, as it currently is and is in trajectory of going, be able to sustain a witness in a minority Christian culture? You see, the things that are the subscripts in our news today, things happening in other parts of the world, we could see become living reality in our part of the world. God is blessing us with a myriad of Muslims running from Islam. Now granted, others come along with them who have nefarious motives that, of course, should not be allowed to come here. But the others are generally burned out and neutral now about Islam and open to other things. It's a prime opportunity for witness. It's a prime opportunity to be prepared, not to necessarily face Sharia law, though if that ever comes here, uh, we hopefully will become a valiant persecuted church. But right now, I fear that the church in North America is set to burn out upon entry into that kind of world. So today, the question is, are we living this life anchored in our perspective, looking through the lens of the next life? Paul was in this passage, as you know from the background of Philippians, that it is well known in a paradoxical way as the epistle of joy. 
Joy is the predominant theme throughout, but realize where he was. He was in a dark, dank Roman prison. You can almost hear throughout the book the gentle jangling of his chains. I'm sure it was a very unpleasant place to be for any length of time. But most of us would have become extremely introverted in such a setting and wondering, questioning God, why would you ever let this happen to me? I was out there doing your will. I was out there preaching your purposes in this world. Why and how did you ever let me experience this? Paul doesn't seem that way at all. You'd never know except that he mentions it in here about being among the Praetorian Guard that he was in prison. He's not turned in, he's turned out. And his anchor in this life was anchored in Christ in the next life. You know, Christ said, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives. What do you mean by that? He meant the world gives you a sort of peace, a sense of peace that's anchored in circumstances. As long as everything is going your way, you have peace. But let any of that be disrupted. Let you be placed in a prison, chained in a dungeon, and you turn in on yourself, and you become very self-centered. It squeezes us in ways that we perhaps never knew we could be squeezed. Well, Paul is anchored in that next perspective, and he interprets things with joy. And he does so for some interesting reasons. As a kind of prelude to the passage we want to look at this morning, look at verse 12 of chapter 1. He says, I know, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which have happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Question one that we ought to ask ourselves when we're encountering any of these challenges is how can God be glorified and how can the gospel go ahead in spite of my circumstances? What is God wanting to do with my circumstances to project himself and proclaim himself? Paul understood that perspective and he elaborates on that. He basically says there... Uh, some, some preach the gospel, verse 15, some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife and some also from goodwill. He has actually found God's design in his circumstances. And he says the whole Praetorian Guard now is hearing. By the way, if you ever go to prison and you're chained to a, a guard, uh, make sure that he gets really tired of hearing you share your testimony. <laughs> Uh, I've actually been arrested once. Um, it was in Turkey for passing out Bibles. Uh, but we made sure the missionary who was posted there and I both got called into the police station. And uh, we had to explain what we were doing. They thought we were passing out revolutionary literature. Uh, they didn't realize, I guess, quite how revolutionary the Bible can be. <laughs> but... 
there were four floors and there was kind of a captain of each floor and finally we came to the top floor each one booted us upstairs literally to make the decision over what to do with us and um, so we didn't actually go behind bars but we were told to report the police station the day after we were arrested so to speak and we finally got to the chief of police and that lady in Turkey, it was a lady chief of police, um, was wanting to know what we were doing and why we were doing it. And we explained and we had brought with us a, a few more Bibles to the meeting that morning. And uh, she said before we left, she said, I have a copy here of what you were passing out. But you know, I might need another one or two for the files. So we gave her three. And we said, give them to your family members and friends. So if you ever find yourself in similar circumstances, just realize that God has a design for your experience, whether it is by you perceived as good, pleasant, warming, or whether it's a challenge to the core of your existence. What we're looking at this morning is how Paul understood, if you can bear the metaphor, a spiritual DNA. Verse 18, what then, Paul says? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. So even those who were trying to make fun of him, those trying to undermine his ministry while he was predisposed, chained in the prison, he says that he found God's purpose, that even those who mocked him, some sort of presentation of Christ was transpiring. He found God's design even in the midst of such circumstances. Well, let's look more anatomically into verses 19 through 21. He says four, and the four is a reference back to this passage from 12 through 18 about the, him, his interpretation of his circumstances and his rejoicing over that turn of events. Because, or four, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. The knowledge here is actually an experiential-based knowledge. Paul has a, by this point in his ministry, he has a long history of knowing that times and places where he felt like he was about to lose his life, God delivered him. He knows God is able. He knows God is capable. But he knows his life is in Christ. So he's going to be presented here in a moment with a paradox of choice. He says, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. There's a double entendre with the word deliverance. It's the Greek term uh, stem, soteria. It, it literally means salvation. Now, is this a spiritual salvation or is it a physical deliverance? 
Well, in terms of his ultimate eternal salvation, that's already sealed and delivered in Christ. But what he's meaning here is either spiritually I'm going to be translated into the presence of the Lord, or, and we see that elaborated here in just a moment, or I'm going to be let loose and allowed to continue the work that Christ has called me to among the Gentiles. So there's a, a sense in which both can be the meaning and may actually both have a semblance of meaning in connection to the passage involved. Through, and here's the power piece, this is how he knows it will happen, not only because of the past pattern with God's intervention and saving of him, delivering of him out of other circumstances in the past, not only then is his trust in God, but his trust is also in the believers and their role in co-laboring with him in this, in that they are also going to be involved through their prayer and the supply of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. Don't ever underestimate the power of prayer. Paul constantly refers to prayer in his epistles. At the end of Ephesians, he even asks the Ephesians to pray that he will be able to proclaim the gospel boldly. When Dr. Morris and I and a group of students go out each Friday afternoon, um, uh, as often as I've presented the gospel to people, even cold turkey like that, uh, I always approach it with a sense of uh, anxiety. I think we all do. Maybe Dr. Queen doesn't, but the rest of us do. Uh, I don't think he's ever met a stranger, but praise the Lord, that's the, one of the characteristics of a true evangelist. And uh, praise the Lord, he's there here to lead us on in that. But the... Uh, uh, fear and trembling, the anxiety that we may have, I always ask the Lord, give me boldness. In other words, let me come out of myself and whatever fears I might have and embrace what you want done in these people's lives. You never know what the tip of the iceberg is, what's hidden behind that person's present life. You never know what might happen if you simply have boldness. Paul prays for boldness. Even Paul prays for boldness. So he is here stating, I know I can trust God, but you too are involved. Your prayer, your supplications, your beseeching the Lord's throne on my behalf will have an effect and it unleashes the power of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. Folks, when you have that kind of momentum and power, what can stand against it? So Paul is convinced. He knows that he will be delivered. In verse 20, he says, according to my earnest expectation. That's an interesting term. It literally was used in classical Greek to refer to the Olympic Games and the runners who would lunge forward, lean forward. We see it today. If you've ever seen Usain Bolt, for example, you know, uh, run, 
his six foot five frame leaning forward, he seems to make, he makes it look so simple and easy. And he doesn't seem to take enhancing drugs, it seems. Uh, but he leans forward at the very end. And he does everything that a runner should not do. He's looking around to see where everybody else is while he's running, but he leans forward. It's just that smooth and simple and easy for him to set multiple Olympic and world records. So um, Paul has that sense of earnest expectation. He's about to cut the tape. He's about... He's standing on the precipice of this life. He, he's very willing to admit the possibility of his own death. And he's leaning forward whatever the next step may be. He's trusting the Lord. His earnest expectation and hope that in nothing shall I be ashamed. Meaning all of what I've lived life for all of what I've proclaimed, all of what I've preached will prove true, and I will never be proven to be wrong because what I say and what I do is in Christ. Remember in Galatians chapter 2, he even speaks of what we call often the exchanged life. He says, it is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. Is our life an exchanged life? Has we, have we reached that point? If not, we need to grow daily toward it. More and more we learn of Christ, we need to surrender yet more. And believe me, it'll be a lifetime journey, but what a wonderful journey to be on. He says, as always, so now, also, Christ will be showcased, magnified, spotlighted, set in the very presence of my life. And he says, in my person, in my body, whether it is by life or by death, whichever. Now, verse 22 and following, he elaborates that he, he's pretty convinced that God's going to physically deliver him and that there's a great advantage to the Philippians and others in that because he can continue his ministry among them. But he says in this very climactic verse, everything seems in the, in the book of Philippians to move to or from this pivotal statement. For me, he says, to live is Christ. And for me to die will be a gain. Now, if you take the name Christ out of that verse, nothing else makes logical sense. For me to live is my family. For me to live is, some people might say, my bank account. For me to live is my Winnebago. I've never understood that. <laughs> we live a whole life 
and buy a Winnebago, some people do, and drag it all over the country complaining about the gas prices every mile, and then w get bored to death watching leaves drop or grow, whichever season it is. And then we call this fun. Uh, a gentleman just died in Chiang Mai, Thailand, whom I was greatly inspired by. He, uh, Gary Harthcock, he was 98 years old. He came to the mission field with his wife right after they retired, and they had been short-term missionaries, uh, ISCers throughout the world in various places. First time I ever met him was in that great retirement resort area known as Phnom Penh, Cambodia, where you had to watch where you step literally, because of the landmines that were all over the country. I said to him, Brother Gary, how long are you and Miss Evelyn going to continue to do this? He said, oh, Keith, he said, until the Lord takes us home. He said, the devil never retires. We can't either. So he and Miss Evelyn both died still speaking the gospel, still ministering truth in a strongly Buddhist country just in the last couple of months. His wife had gone on before him, and praise the Lord, he left a very lingering witness to a lot of missionaries too, and Buddhist monks, particularly because of his age, flocked to hear what he and his wife had had to say. So is our life designed this way? Maybe if we invert it, it's this way. For me to die is gain, but to live, it must be only about Christ. Now, in a very minuscule way, this particular verse has been very meaningful to me in my life because this coming December... It'll be 16 years ago since I was faced with what felt like a life-and-death issue. I had to have triple bypass surgery. And in the week in between the diagnosis and the surgery, do you know how many times the word heart seems to keep appearing in the Bible? Now, obviously, I know it's meaning spiritual heart, but oh my... And in reading this passage, as the days grew closer to the surgery, the anxiety increased, and the Lord gave me a comfort from this. Because I realized that for the believer, all I'm going to do on that day of surgery is get something I've really needed, and that's a sleep. Surgeon put me to sleep. And I was going to wake up looking at one of two beautiful faces. Either his or hers. She was a nurse at Duke at the time and was able to use her badge as a staff nurse to get in. And the first face I saw was hers. Well, folks, 
If we live, is it for Christ? Or if we die, is it a gain? Maybe there's a job description. I've written a job description. Some of you are about to graduate and perhaps you're looking for a job. Let me read this job description for you. Employment opportunity, immediately wanted. By the way, you mentioned Siberia. Uh, we have students currently in Siberia. And this time of year, uh, that particular student says that, hey, they keep out in the streets witnessing and going around doing what God's called them to do until it reaches 30 below zero. Because, hey, people need Christ. People who will fit the following job description are immediately wanted. Qualifications. Chosen applicants are those willing to die for the advance of Christ's kingdom, especially where it has never had local franchises. On-the-job training is available. A willing heart is the minimal requirement. Placement. Job site is perhaps completely unknown. But applicants must be willing to relocate and be dislodged from all things familiar, family, friends, foods, habits, customs, or other comfort zone elements. Salary. Normally, it's just enough to fill all your absolute needs, but successful applicants must be willing to sacrifice all wants in order to relate to those who are dying without the gospel. Hours. Usually more than can seemingly fit in one 24-hour day. Primary duties, applicants must seek out and implement all possible ways of being literally poured out, broken and spilled out for the eternal benefit of others. Accountability, in order to be an effective team member, successful applicants must report directly and regularly to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Benefits, there are no insurance guarantees. If you live, it's to labor for the king. If you die, hey, it's your benefit, your gain. Retirement, lasting benefits are redeemable at death, but they are literally out of this world. For example, an unused crown of glory, a fully furnished mansion, the right to sing a new song and to reign for a thousand years with king. And folks, that's just the beginning. Interested applicants must contact the king in person. Call 1-800-PRAY. The king answers 24 hours a day. God never sleeps. He's always there for you. As long as we know that living is Christ... And dying is gain. What does it mean in those scrolling footnotes of our news today to really live the exchanged life? To live with this spiritual DNA? Maybe it's best illustrated with this film clip. Let's see that together. We were praying for revival, believing God would do a big work in Syria. 
then the war came. Now the terrorists are attacking Christian homes, churches, and even our children. Their goal is to empty Syria of its Christians. We hate the spirit of Islam that is destroying our country, but we love our Muslim neighbors. They come to us and say, in the name of our God, terrorists rape and kill, where is God? We tell them about Jesus, and many are coming to know him. Still others say, we are like living in hell. One day, while I was praying, I asked God what he would have me do to be his witness. But he only asked me, will you give me your life? As I prayed, I understood he wanted all of me. And I said yes. If the time came, I was willing to die for Jesus. The next day, while I was praying, I asked God again what he would have me do. This time, he asked me, are you willing to give me your husband's life? It is not easy to be ready to die. My husband and I prayed about this together. We said yes to God. The third day was the most difficult. On this day, God asked me if I was willing to give up my children's lives. The terrorists know who we are and that we share Jesus with Muslims. It is not safe for our family. My husband and I prayed and fasted, and together we agreed. God gave us our precious children. He has the freedom to take them back. When we agreed to put our children on the altar, I knew I had to tell them the truth. I told them that it was possible that men with swords may come through our door, men who didn't know Jesus. They may say bad things to us and try to force us to convert to Islam. But no matter what they say, we should not answer them. We should only tell them that Jesus loves them and that we forgive them. I told them that we might see some blood and have some pain, but it would only be for a little while. <laughs> that we should just close our eyes. And when we open them, we will be with Jesus. Am I a good mother? Do you have to tell my children such things? I also told them that as long as God wants us to be safe, we will be safe, that he is in control. Even during the bloodshed, during the killing, he is carrying our future. This is what it means to be a Christian in Syria.
Father, let us live a fully exchanged life. Wherever that means you're calling us to go, and whatever it means you're asking us to surrender in life or in death. In Christ's name.